Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, Mitchell, moi, yours truly, surveys the planetary situation and provides solutions and commentaries. I'll read the blurb so we are oriented and on the same page. This evening, Mitchell Rabin, holistic psychotherapist, stress management consultant, and founder and CEO of the Better World Foundation, host and producer of Better World Radio and TV, will survey current events, those that are dominating the ever-changing news cycle, breaking our hearts, as well as those on the deeper levels of pollution, contamination of our beautiful Gaia, and the issues around climate change. We'll take a quick spin into the Milky Way just to gain some temporal and spatial perspective, but we'll come back to dear Earth, Pachamama, and examine the peculiar ways this human species operates here and Due to its advanced mind-body-soul, three-brained energy field, it can actually repair and to some great extent shape the future. The idea of repair, as referred to here, is referenced in the Hebrew with the phrase tikkun olam, healing, repairing, fixing the world. Wow, what a tall order! It's going to take us a long time to do all of this, folks, today. I'm kidding. It will actually be under 45 minutes, and we will have accomplished, well, with your help, all of that. (laughs) With your help. So let's first take a little spin into the Milky Way, all right? Let's get perspective. Okay, good. As I've said so many times on the air as well as in my workshops, classes, and my sessions with individuals, couples, and families, you know, we need perspective. Everything is perspective. And imagination to us is our way of putting ourselves into her shoes. Yes, her. Of course, you don't think that God is a male, do you? Well, I believe actually God is not any gender whatsoever, but both and all, and uh, is actually genderless. It is an idea of the supreme nature of reality, and we simply assign it a gender because we're gender-based and gender-oriented ourselves, and it's just a very kind of a au naturel kind of organic thing to do, so... That's the nature of those pronouns, if you don't mind my using them, a bit playfully here and there in both directions. The idea is that we have this inherent intelligence, a biological intelligence. We could call it a spiritual intelligence, but it's an intelligence that goes far beyond our conscious mind and is more akin and aligned to what we could refer to as our unconscious mind. There's a whole lot more in the idea of unconscious mind that I'm not going to go into this very moment. But in this sense, there is this notion we get from the ancient Chinese, God bless them, called the Tao, the way. 
the way of nature, the way of things, the way of heaven and earth, as it is said in that cosmology. And when we sort of follow that line of thought and reasoning, we come to embrace truly this idea that we are one with everything and we actually are everything and we are but a fractal relationship with everything. Well, what the heck does any of that mean? Well, on one hand, we are in the universe, we are of the universe, we are for the universe, and we are the universe. We contain universes, and we are within universes. It's a multidimensional reality, if you will. Truly multidimensional and simultaneous at that. We are non-local, we are bi-local, and no doubt we are tri-local. <laughs> so, and in some weird, larger way, unilocal. So, you know, yes, we're having a little fun with language, but that's a very good and very healthy thing to kind of titillate our neurons into making new neural connections and having the joy of that so we're not locked in and rutted, as it were, in our just usual linguistic parameters. So, with all of that said, um, <clears throat> should I do the whole thing now in Chinese, Australian, Spanish, South African? You tell me, Swahili. I hope you don't say yes, because I cannot do any of that. <laughs> if I get close, it would be in French or it would be in Spanish, but it wouldn't sound so good. I assure you, it would not. Anyway, coming back around to our spin into the Milky Way, <clears throat> I'm not just being sort of far out, so to speak, except that I am going to be far out, which means that we have this uncanny, exceptional, magnificent, and I would dare say even miraculous ability to, by exercising our mind through our brain, and our spirit conjoined as one spin off into the universe, which means that we can project our consciousness, we can project ourselves, our sense of self, into a way far remote place and look down, look across, as it were. In fact, let's start a little bit more locally. Let's just go to the moon. It's a little easier. So if we simply take our imagination, we use our imagination, which we're doing constantly all the time, and project ourselves to the moon, and we look back, and thankfully we have these incredible photographs that were taken uh, during the early Apollo days, um, in the late 60s and early 70s. So we have what are the first photographs of Earth from outer space so-called outer space, right? Specifically, from around the space of the moon. And, oh my God, it's gorgeous. It's what we call the blue-green planet. 
It's one of our logos for a better world foundation and media. You'll see it everywhere in our literature and our radio and TV shows and the newsletters. Use it all the time, including on our website, on the home page. So this image, as reported by the astronauts, by the way, the astronauts, was so awesome that it took secular people getting feeling what was referred, what they referred to as a religious awe because of the utter magnificence of this blue-green water planet. And from that place, my friends, it looks so sweet. And it is so elegant and so colorful and so natural that you just kind of want to take a bite out of it. It's so beautiful. And you feel that if there's any part of you that's connecting to it first, it's actually your heart. Your heart just kind of leaps out of your chest if you really sort of uh, contemplate, meditate on the photographs of the earth from space you just say oh my home I want more of that it's so good and all of those beautiful creatures on that planet all of those species from the big ones to the small from the hippopotamus to the bacteria Remarkable coral reefs and zebras and humans even and dogs and cats and squirrels and birds of every color. This is a party. This is sort of like a a celebration of life itself. Every single color an Amazon rainforest. Congolese rainforest and others strewn throughout the planet, people of all sizes, shapes, colors, eye colors, beauty, shapeliness, strength, stamina, talent, gifts, creativity, humor, musical talent, dance talent, Building talent, orchestral governance, oh my God, technological development. It is truly nothing short of a flourishing, burgeoning type of fertile planet. Life is everywhere. Wow. Let me in. I want to play. I want to be part of it. Delicious, fresh water flowing down from the mountains. Delicious, fresh air up in the mountains. Dryness, humidity, wind, no wind, silence, birds singing, people singing, swimming, running, dancing, celebrating self-expressing, development of language, written language, percussive language, lyrical language, 
<laughs> this is like a festival. It's it's a festival of lights and treats wherever you look. And this is all geological and biological and carrying forward hundreds of thousands and millions and even billions of years of development to this very point. What do they say? 13.5 billion years? And human beings out of that time period, maybe 100 to 200,000 years? We cannot identify the exact date of birth, you know, of what we call Homo sapiens. Um, But there are some rough sketches of it. And, well, even that rather scientifically uh, based carbon dating history is subject to fluctuation and change because all they have to do and they continue to do is discover yet some more bones. Whether it's Lucy or one of her cousins, we find the bones and we do the carbon dating, and oh my God, <laughs> we're another 100,000 years older than we thought we were. So it, it gets very, very interesting. So we don't have to bother ourselves with those details. I was going to say mundane details. There's nothing mundane about it, but just to be you know, funny. Uh, this, we've been around for a while. And, of course, it is postulated that there was the time of Atlantis and the time of Lemuria that were sort of buried, lost civilizations. Uh, They went defunct because of the misuse of power and technology. Hmm, sound familiar? At least in the case of Atlantis, Lemuria had its own challenges and problems. I actually don't know what those are. Uh, And then there were even civilizations around the times of Egypt like Ebla, E-B-L-A, and other what appear to be lost and buried civilizations. Oh, we have the Hittites and the Hurrians and so many other Sumerians. And how did the Sumerians arrive? We have all sorts of interesting speculations from the work of Zachariah Sitchin and others carried on through today by uh, a dear colleague and friend, Michael Tellinger, uh, that continues to speculate about what life was like back then and the fact that we were perhaps visited by other intelligences from other parts of our Milky Way, most likely, and they were fertilizing we homo sapiens back then and gave us the gift of another level of intellectual skill and technological prowess, which led to a major cultural leap and a shift in our own consciousness, like a a quantum shift. Is it true? Is it not true? I, I don't know. There's lots of interesting evidence that shows up on the, uh, landscape from the Old Testament um, and cuneiform inscriptions, linear B, all sorts of really interesting indicators, fingers pointing, saying that this may be the case and that may be the case. And if we track 
the development of of the species, it made what appears to be a radical, you know, psychological, technological at least, leap forward during the Sumerian times that just wasn't there before. So what you could ask and should ask accounts for that major change and leap in and progress in the nature of the human psyche and its cultural attributes as well as, you know, technologies. So as we track, as we track, we see a few different things. We see, of course, we went from what was called the hunting and gathering era where we foraged and um, built different types of tribal nesting sites and then moved on when we got what we needed from that location and then famine was entering in um, and we ate nuts and berries and seeds and drank a lot of water and ate a lot of fruit and probably killed an animal here and there and for our sustenance and that's just the way it was. Then, of course, the idea of agriculture came in where some... I don't know what kind of quantum leap occurred in consciousness to do that. It is postulated that the first agricultural efforts were made to grow hops in order to manufacture beer. Always looking for an altered state. (laughs) Always, always. Anyway, it's a very interesting postulate and hypothesis, and there probably is some real basis to it. And so I, in my mind, certainly really entertain it as a very viable uh, variable in possibility. And a book that I love recommending to people is called Ishmael. And God, Dan, why do I always forget his last name? But I will get it for you, and you do need to know it. It's so silly that I forget his name last name because I am so crazy about this book and um, uh, oops I'll look for it right now and get it to you Um, you deserve to have the name of this Daniel Quinn is his name published originally in 1992 which is when I found out about it and uh, I don't actually want to tell you more about it because it is so special and everyone who reads it is sort of takes a a quiet implied oath not to tell others about who the teacher is and what the teacher is and um, details about it because it's just something best to discover through your own direct experience. And I will say, though, however, it does bring up this moment in human history of going from the hunting-gathering mentality to an agricultural one and some of the constituent parts of that. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment. But just to come back to our story after having projected ourselves into space, looking at the Earth and doing a quick spin also through our history, a very quick spin, and I appreciate your indulgence. We come to a point of, I'm going to go zip, zip, zip today. We have 
an amazingly rich technological civilization in many ways. Many of us would argue whether we have civilization at all because civis from the Latin, well, literally means, uh, relates to the word uh, civics and um, civility, city. And uh, when one lives in a city, one needs to be civilized, which means a certain level of 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 maturity so many people can live in one small space in a way that's cooperative kind compassionate understanding patient playful humorous and gentle and do we have that in our cities do we have that in our rural areas well yeah to some extent and to another extent not To another big extent, there's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of suffering, as the Buddhists remind us all the time. There's a tremendous amount of suffering on different levels of our species. And a lot of that suffering ends up being projected and taken out, this frustration, the anxiety, the lack of knowing, the lack of understanding of why I am here, what I am is or are anyway, what is identity, what is life, Alfie, what's it all about? So when people start asking themselves these rather deep questions, and it is very appropriate to do so, and very inappropriate not to, otherwise we're making an assumption like we know what it's all about, and it's hardly the case later on we can play with that but uh, most fundamentally we are here to sort of get clear about what is our true identity I believe it's my opinion our true identity and to fulfill some role that is consonant and resonant with sentient life of all levels as best we can, so we can be in the Tao, as I was speaking about that earlier, playing a role in the larger life, the larger cosmological position in which we currently find ourselves. So the beauty is that we have this imagination, this kind of godly feature that allows us to go out to the moon and then we can spin out even further to the galaxy and the Milky Way to its farthest reaches and take a peek back to where we are and gain perspective because we have so seriously lost perspective. And I'm not saying that we need to dwell out in the outer spheres and the celestial heavens all the time. I don't think so. However, we don't want to forget that we are a member of a much larger galactic and universal relationship while minding the business and mending the business, tikkun olam, if you remember, at home. Yes, minding the business at home. On our earth, let's imagine that we're all given a home, a shelter, a nest, a habitat, and it is our 
obligation, our duty, and our wish to take care of it, to kind of keep it clean and orderly, with fragrance, with beauty, possibly with symmetry, welcoming. And we've got the ancient art of feng shui, uh, wind water, to help us do that. And we can rely on that or the Indian version of it uh, that's actually more ancient called Vastu, V-A-S-T-U. And actually, virtually every indigenous group has had its own form of feng shui and of Vastu to varying degrees of, um, of sophistication and refinement including right here in the U.S. of A., where we have sometimes call it, you know, um, interior decorating or interior design. There's a sensibility. There's a, an aesthetic. Um, there's a balance of color, size, space, and proportion, of light and dark, of angles and circles. All of this figures into creating beautiful space, creating practical, useful, functional space. And, you know, the Chinese and the Indians, as far as I know, have developed this to such an extent. It is both a refined art and science. And it's amazing to behold the level of detail and precision, including mathematical slash astrological, that the Chinese and the Indians have gone to to understand the best, highest use of space and the arrangement of things in that space. Um, in fact, feng shui is frequently um, translated, even though literally it means uh, feng shui, wind and water. Uh, it's usually more practically uh, translated as placement. So there are some rooms that are really good for being creative and productive. There are other rooms in a given space based on east, west, north, and south, the presence of water, the presence of mountain views, the presence of sun, the dawning and the twilighting of sun, you know, the arc of the sun over the house. Uh, some rooms are good for uh, sex and procreation, others for fecund, uh, you know, business activity, uh, others for enjoyment and socializing and play for another. So, you know, this is the intelligence of this ancient wisdom that we are the beneficiaries of in our society, which has become somewhat global. So, even in the West, we have the benefit of the East. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Anyway, so we have this thing we refer to these days as society and civilization. Well, we find that there is this other thing called money, which is sort of the generative energy, the life force that keeps our societies kind of running. Well, what really keeps it running is the flow of water, the flow of electricity, uh, and the flow of our own body's energy. And when you put those together, that's really what the currency is. But we've 
displaced some of that energy into uh, and added some to this thing that we call money. So money becomes the the generative life force, <laughs> sometimes more than one's own internal life force, and that becomes its own problem. <clears throat> but anyway, to come back around, the tendency of humans when they don't understand what's going on and get satisfactory answers to the question of why, why am I here, what am I supposed to do, what is this all about, Alfie, por favor, please tell me, let me ask the stars, let, let me ask the sun and the moon, let me ask my parents, let, let me ask my friends and my siblings, let me ask my coworkers. <laughs> Let me ask myself. Um, and when the answers aren't that satisfactory, well, we put our nose to the grindstone because we have to make this currency called money. Um, and we have to kind of get down to it. And we want to feel a sense of purpose. Nonetheless, even if we do not understand the larger picture, we say, well, we're here. I have to make this accommodation. I have to use, I have this life force streaming through my body. And I need to do something with it and uh, be somewhat engaged in this thing called life, in society, in being social. And we understand biologically that we have a drive toward survival. And I think a, a good argument could be made that we also have a drive toward what is now called thrival. And um, that's just what goes on. We have these drives toward Adventure, productivity, creativity, self-expression, whatever all of that means, whatever it means, it has the meaning that we attribute to it. So I have an idea. Let's attribute a lot of meaning to it, and that way we'll have a very meaningful life. And what's that about? Well, when I feel like I've got a meaningful life, a meaningful connection to things, I feel more alive, and when I feel more alive, I feel better, and my heart is balanced, and my blood is flowing, and I feel the chi, I feel the life force, and I'm generally quite happy. I'm making fewer demands, I'm happy at being, simply being, and when I'm happy at being, I start to want to get involved in doing and my life becomes some interesting uh, interplay and interface of being and doing and inside of that it's like a sandwich it's uh, got a lot of love and it's got a lot of meaning and it's got a lot of movement and it's got a lot of ideation and creativity and intuition and wants to have a lot of sensory experience. I want to be able to touch and I want to be touched and I want to listen and I want to be listened to. I become interactive. And the more you kind of look at it, the more your neuroscience is also telling us that our survival and thrival are actually based on social interaction, our ability to please others, to be pleased ourselves, to know how to get on with people, 
to be resonant with them, to enter a quantum field, or you could call it a morphogenetic field, in a space that's invisible but ever-present, in which we interact with each other, since language is only spoken language. One thin, though beautiful, strain of interaction, one thread of many, and we're interacting with each other all the time, and we're reading each other. We have eyesight. We have olfactory. We have hearing, right? We have kinesthetic experience where we can feel so much. In Chinese medicine, for instance, the pulses are many. It's not just one single pulse. We have one for the liver, one for the spleen, one for the kidney, and two levels deep, three positions. And that's on one wrist. And on the other wrist, we have others. We have the heart. We have the pericardium. We have the triple burner, sanjiao. So you're kidding me. So there we are listening, if you will, with our fingers. But this is nothing short of fascinating. It's another adventure. Because we find that when we step out of fear, a big emotion in human beings, because it's directly connected to survival, and it's the fight or flight, and it's very, very useful, so we can get danger if it's near, or we can fight to defend ourselves if we must, or we freeze when we can. (laughs) uh, In those ways, we're actually preserving our lives. And that's a reptilian function, and thank God for it. However, when we're not in danger, when we do not perceive danger, that is, then we have the luxury of moving into our mammalian brain that is connected to mammary, of course, and mammal, of course, and we start to feel nurturance. We start to feel love, we start to feel connection, connectedness, memory glands, we start to feel a warmth, and we're warm-blooded. So you see where we're going with this, right? We're moving forward from the reptilian brainstem into the mammalian brain, then into the cerebral cortex, and the prefrontal lobes. Wow. I like to call that moving forward in our lives. And it's an adventure, and it's a venture and a journey from in the back to the forward. It's like going from the back of the movie theater into the front rows. And we get to the front rows where we're actually dealing with the prefrontal cortex. And, my friends... The heart. The heart is a brain. And I say it's the highest brain. All the brains are high. The prefrontal cortex, it's the executor. It's the executive. It's decision making. It's analytic. It has a rational function. Complemented when everything is coherent and working well by what we refer to and uh, associate with the intuition, the spatial awareness, the gestaltic grokking 
as we say in Star Trek. That momentary knowing that we get, that hit of truth that we experience. And then our heart, huh, we drop into our heart and we get the universe. We get everything. And we do talk about heart coherence as well. And we have Heart Math Institute very much to thank for that very concept of heart coherence. We've always had cerebral coherence of mental and brain coherence. We've had that for many decades. But heart coherence, well, at least in my repertoire, that is, you know, all of perhaps 20, 25 years old. It's not that old. Um, And it's a very useful thing. So when we have heart coherence, which they are able to measure, uh, um, then we end up with a a, um, a uh, radiation, if you will, a radiance, a beam, an arc, a, an electromagnetic field, or what's commonly referred to as a biofield or an aura, an aura that gets projected out from our heart, which is much bigger than anything that comes from our head brain, from anything inside our skull. Our heart is honestly where it's at. Now, I know I didn't speak yet about the gut, but, you know, in my introduction, I talked about three-brained beings and three-brained energy field, informed energy field, and that's really what I'm addressing this moment. Then I'm going to come down to what's kind of going on in the current events piece of tonight's talk. Let me remind you all, you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World Radio. We are on every Wednesday. In fact, right before... Uh, I got on the air this evening. I received a phone call from the Zen teacher, Joan Halifax, who was originally scheduled for this evening. But uh, due to one communication matter or another, we uh, have delayed until August 8th, I believe. Yes, August 8th. And it will be on earlier in the day. But no matter, no matter It's still available, and I know all of you listen in podcast, radio archive anyway, so what's the big deal? All right. I'm just letting you know. I think it will be aired at um, what would be 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Big Apple Time on Wednesday, August 8th. If you do not yet know Joan Halifax, do look her up. She is one of the classic Zen female leaders and pioneers and God bless that woman I'm so glad that we will be engaged in dialogue with her and very soon also with Dr. Raphael Kelman I realize they have to get back to me we're set but I haven't gotten a chance to read his books yet but I will and that will be on the microbiome which is the subject I'm about to bring up right this moment which is the gut brain. So we've got the head brain, we've got the heart brain, and we've got the gut brain. And don't make any mistake about it. This is a brain. And we've said this on this show so many times, I can't even remember. And on the shows and on the work I've been doing um, in the holistic health field and in the psychological, psychotherapeutic, holistic fields, um, probably for 
30-plus years, we have this understanding of three brain beings. Thank you, Mr. George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, who is the first one who brought that to my attention when I was at the ripe, tender age of 21. And uh, I've been grateful for it ever since. So the gut brain, as with the heart brain, has tens of thousands of neuroreceptor sites. That means that these are thinking brains, just as our head brain, residing in our skulls, the cerebral cortex and prefrontal cortex, they think, they celebrate, but in their own unique ways, with their own type of information, that what we refer to as a gut feeling, distinct from what we have as a thought, and distinct from what we have as a heart feeling. But they're all feelings and all thoughts in one way or another. So I just want to make that clear. Let's spin around. Let's take a quick look at what we've done to our beautiful planet that we see from the moon, and we even see, though more distantly, from a remote, distant part of the Milky Way. As we zoom in on planet Earth, we see that there is this magnificent ecosystem where each little bit of everything is in direct, relevant, integral relationship with everything else. So, you know, we have integral relationships, we have symbiotic relationships, we have parasitic relationships, we have more bacteria present in what we refer to as our physical body, then we have human cells, viruses have their own intelligence. I mean, what we have on planet Earth is teeming with life. No mistake about it. Everything is teeming and everything needs everything else. In Buddhist psychology, we refer this to this as the law of interdependence. Not dependence, not codependence, not independence. Meaning that insects that we say we may not like are actually consuming other insects and other life forms that are protecting us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The cat population keeps down the mouse population, which keeps down the bacterial population and the other little critter populations, and those populations in turn, it's awesome. The level of orchestration and the elegance of the system is beyond anything that any of us could have imagined or, God knows, created. Yet, we're part of it. We're an integral part of the entirety of the ecosystem and the universe. So we give to the earth as the earth gives to us. It's an inter dependent relationship that we want to remember. So, 
when we get the bright idea to puncture her and let her ancient fumes spill out like blood, like we're puncturing an artery or a vein and out flows oil, well, for a wee little bit in a certain point in time, well, we probably won't die by doing that, but at a certain point when our cerebral cortex is working a bit more creatively and we figure out the power of the photon and the velocity of wind to generate what we're all looking for, which is more energy to operate other technologies and our homes and our conveniences, our computers, on and on, we want to make the shift. We want to make that progressive act happen. But there are people who want to continue doing the old, even though we have since found out that it is highly pollutive and contaminating our other resources, our other abundant flows of energy, like I referred to before, of water and air and soil so our habitats become contaminated and our water supply becomes contaminated and it goes from beautiful, fresh, mountainous water, pure as the driven snow, ho, 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 to what? Mercury? Cadmium? Arsenic? Are you kidding me? Polluting my liver, my kidney, my spleen? Giving me stomach aches? I'm breaking out in hives? Wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? My skin and my teeth and my bones and everything could be as healthy as a horse, ho-ho, for decades, maybe millennia, I don't know. But not if I'm going to pollute it and then make this other kind of life force called money, currency, superior in meaning and value and priority to all other levels of life form. What? That's insane. That's out of balance. It's immoderate, to say the least. Silly, silly. So who's thinking about this? Well, the reality is many of us are. But there's one just wee little problem. We who are doing most of the thinking about it and considering about it and caring about it, those with the greatest compassion, don't seem to be the people in power. Well, power, what the heck is that? And how does one get that? There are legislative forms, political power, governance, and money. Money confers its own level of power in this society, dictated and determined and defined in our society. They are rules. They're completely made-up rules. Yet, rules are bendable. Rules are mutable. Rules are changeable. And people are changing them and bending them all the time, from above to below. So there have been some wise people, uh, some of whom I've interviewed on this show, that have uh, defined real power as those who can wield Force through violent threats because they have things called guns and military might. 
And that is a sad way of governance, but it is, generally speaking, the way of governance. And we haven't found a way to fully overcome that yet. And I really emphasize that word yet. It's such a small little word. It looks so innocent. Y-E-T. But it's very close to Y-E-S, I realize. Yes and yet. And yes, indeed. We're very close to yet. Meaning that there are cycles in this world. And we've run many shows about cycles of greater physical prowess and then greater emotional prowess and then intellectual creative prowess. And these come and go and mix and match and fluctuate and run up and down and cross over. And uh, my dear colleague and friend, David Katzmeyer, has formulated something brilliant called Calorhythms, which really analyzes to the T the nature of these cycles. And while we generally follow in society follows these cycles. There are many, many, many exceptions, and they are stronger and more concentrated at certain times during the course of time, and other times lesser, but it's really interestingly accurate at times, and it's certainly something to pay attention to from my point of view. Yet, you know, we do have, uh, we have, you know, salmon swimming upstream that are occurring at all times, meaning even during a time of a physical high, we have people who are emotionally, individually, who are emotionally and intellectually high, not physically. And so they will continue to speak like Gandhi of nonviolence, even at a time of a physical high, which suggests military might is, is mighty and the highest. So, you know, we do have these sorts of disparities and polarities that are occurring all the time. It seems like the nature of reality and the nature of life itself. But that notwithstanding, I want to say that there really is, because I said I'd reference solutions, and there really are solutions that are coming forward more and more by very big-hearted, big-minded, creative people who are experimenting, who are looking at the nature of global warming, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and how to capture it, really powerfully capture it, to retard this phenomenon we refer to as climate change. And there are some major breakthroughs happening in this space. So I will say that on that level, uh, we want to really look at things, even though we are smitten with different political, economic, and militaristic, social uh, crises, injustices, imbalances, peculiarities, frustrations, anxieties. Um, at the same time, wouldn't you know it, there is this beautiful outpouring surgeons of people who are working every day for the well-being of all sentient life and 
behaviors that are from grassroots activity and very little money managing to get elected, even right here in New York City, such as Alexandria Ocasio, uh, God, what was the rest of her name? <laughs> I'm forgetting her second, uh, oh, that's just awful. Alexandra, please forgive me. Um, she's this lovely 28-year-old Puerto Rican-American uh, woman who just just sacked a long-time 10-term, not 10-year, 10 10-term 10 incumbent Joe Crowley. And it is remarkable what happened here. It's just remarkable what occurred and everyone is just beside themselves with happiness at what can happen when people really stand up and claim that they're going to really make things happen and and overcome the ordinary conventional thinking. Here, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, por favor, and <laughs> excuse moi, um, uh, permiso. I made a mistake. I, I just uh, dropped off her last, uh, the last half of her name. But lovely woman who is just what she calls a social democrat. So you've got these eruptions. You've got these like mini earthquakes happening on political levels, on social levels. You've got outpourings of people who are aghast at what the United States government is doing down at the Mexican border of separating mothers from children. I mean, the most basic biological relationship that we have on earth from the mother's breast, no less. These children by this government are being ripped apart and then delivered to parts unknown. It's just madness what is going on. And people have been protesting in cities across the country, and the government is listening. There is embarrassment. There is shame. They don't admit that. But, you know, Trump's own wife and daughter are just demanding that he stop this horrific, inhumane nonsense. And it's having an effect. Okay? It's not what we want. It's not nearly as far as bringing it to a humane state. But there's movement. So there's movement on these levels. There are solutions in grass, roots, activity, letter writing, protest, you know, civil disobedience, and just working every level. And that goes for across the world. That's not unique to the United States, outpouring, outcrying, women in Saudi Arabia, primitive as that country and government are, primitive, barbaric, despite, you know, painting lipstick on the pig, women are driving now, and that's because women have been protesting and standing up and just driving, just doing it, and now, in fact, they're able to. There's a whole lot more cleanup that has to happen. I mean, what's going on in Yemen is unspeakable. And the United States' involvement and assistance in that is uns- 
No wonder we have a world at war. We have a species that continually fights itself instead of getting along, cooperating with each other, allowing oxytocin to flow, friendship, connectedness, love, compassion, playfulness, and getting creative as a group, everybody, because that is, in fact, what can really happen when there's a will to do so, when there is a will to do so, and actions that follow therefrom. So, with that said, I'm going to have to wind it up right now. I feel that I have addressed some of the issues. It is up to us to play, to enjoy, and at the same time take to heart all that's going on on this very dear planet and own it as our own down in the Amazon and the Congo and every single continent. We have to be conscious and loving and we have to send our intentions through the quantum field because we know and we have measured and we have scientific basis to say that intentions affect material reality. So please remember that, folks. Our thoughts, our feelings, our belief systems are affecting material reality because spirit and matter are on the same wavelength. It's just a different level of density, concentration, and refinement. That's it. There's one unified being called life, called the universe. We had Jude Kurvan on recently talking about a finite universe and information as the base of all, the true foundation. Fine. That means we can communicate with everything and people do and trees talk to us as we talk to them and plants and everything else. So shan't we just talk to each other? You betcha. Anyway, listen, I want to just thank you all for your undivided attention to the subject. You understand how important it is. I want to let you know that you can contact me at mjr at abetterworld.net. I love your expressions of appreciation, of course, and uh, your uh, suggestions and comments and questions. If you need any counseling, coaching, business, career, personal family, couples, you can always reach me. I do sessions with people by phone or by Skype across the country and the world. It's not a problem. Communication is always happening. 212-420-0800 or email me. Visit www.mitchellrabin.com and abetterworld.tv. Pass these shows around to your friends and I look forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs>